Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nameless industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Jennifer Abbott, a documentary filmmaker whose credits include Us and Them, which she co-directed with Crystal Loughton, I Am, which she produced and edited, and 2003's The Corporation, which she co-directed with Mark Akbar. She has two films streaming in this year's Planet in Focus Film Festival, The Magnitude of All Things and The New Corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel, which she co-directed with Joel Bakken. They'll both be available to watch at the festival's site, planetinfocus.org, tomorrow, Wednesday, October 14th. Jennifer picked They Live, John Carpenter's 1988 sci-fi masterwork starring Roddy Piper as a construction worker who discovers the human race has been colonized by alien capitalists, and that he's the newest member of the human resistance. A rock-solid thriller that's also a brilliant subversion of the Reagan Revolution, with a fantastic supporting turn from Keith David as another working-class hero drawn into the conflict literally by force, They Live is a work of crack genius, and one that we really need right now. This is someone else's movie. Well, it seemed quite appropriate in these times to uh, talk about a zombie apocalypse movie uh, it, whose plot sort of identifies Reaganomics <laughs> as the primary antagonist and, um, you know, vast inequality, wealth inequalities and uh, surveillance and control of society and Anyway, I thought it would be a little bit cathartic because, you know, these are such bleak times, most of us feel, and it's really hard to figure out, you know, the mental state or, or, or even the motive, you know, the, it's very difficult to, to really like tap into, especially American politicians right now. And so I thought it would be kind of cathartic that we look at this film that, identifies very clearly these zombies as the bad guy and kind of almost a relief that it's so simple. Yeah, that's, that's actually <laughs> fair. Um, I, I was going to say my, my experience of it was that I saw it on the opening weekend, the weekend before the election in 1988 and at the Eaton center in Toronto, oh, wow. uh, a shoebox theater um, in the middle of a shopping mall. And it just, I could not have asked for a more perfect experience of it. The, my, my friends and I just walked out bouncing and, and prepared to do, I don't know, some punk violence that we never actually did because we were suburban kids from Toronto. But it was one of those moments where you just feel the film grab the moment by the neck and just shake it in front of you for 90 minutes. Um, yeah. And yeah, you're right. Hasn't lost a step. It's just, it's so damn relevant. It's so depressing. Um, <laughs> 32 years later, we've learned nothing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's almost as if, it, I mean, it's prophetic in a Dr. Seuss-like way, really. Because That's an excellent way to put it. <laughs> uh, you know, even, well, the it, it's, it's all of the, you know, B-movie tropes and long fight scenes and I mean it's quite it's quite a cheesy film in many ways but it's quite a you know it's the characters are quite adorable even though it's so cheesy oh yeah very much <laughs> and, so and uh, um it's I don't know I just really as soon as you asked this question it was well it was either going to be they live or the Truman Show okay 
or a Thomas Winterberg, which would have been much more serious. <laughs> so I, I think that we all kind of need a, a bit of an opportunity to laugh and a bit of catharsis right now. And um, anyway, it's it, I, I watched it again last night and, and I wasn't disappointed. I hadn't seen it for a long time, many decades. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I revisit it far more often than I think I should. It's just one of those things where every time I expect I'm going to see that it's dated or tropey or something even sillier has happened. And it doesn't do that. Um, the um, more I think about it, it might actually be, if it wasn't for Big Trouble in Little China, which I love to all, you know, exclusion of everything else and, and Halloween, which is pretty much a perfect movie. I would kind of point to it and say that it's Carpenter's best film. It is certainly most, um, intellectually coherent work maybe mm -hmm. escape from i mean it picks up on escape from new york and the anti-authoritarianism there but just the fact that it's a ground level look at an alien invasion that's already happened that's a fait accompli that's been working mm -hmm. for 30 odd years i think it's 1958 i think is the date they throw around but it might even be earlier than that when they first arrived and that you know the world is really black and white and they colorized us and that was a joke in 1980s Hollywood because of colorization. Now it's just like, yeah, of course they would. It just makes perfect sense. It's not even a joke anymore. It's yeah. it's so perfectly engineered to deliver its message. And also it's mm -hmm. a Western about the sheriff that comes into town and stands up against everybody else, which has always been, you know, Carpenter's wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And also it's a science fiction film. And also it's a comedy kind of, yeah. of, of yeah. absurdity. <laughs> Well, yeah, like I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble gum. So yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a comedy of sorts for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it it yeah. captures something about Roddy Piper that no one ever else got either. I mean, I was yeah, not a I big wrestling so. fan, but he's delightful. He is delightful. He is delightful. And he's, he's very imperfect as well, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and he, well, the fight scene, of course, is quite, sure. it's a six, I, I, to tell you, you know, I was a little bit bored by the fight scene <laughs> this time around. It lasts six minutes. Apparently it was at one point in the Guinness World Book of Records for the longest movie fight scene. I wouldn't be but surprised. What I found so funny about the fight scene was when uh, Nada, the character, smashes the window of Frank's car it's at that moment he apologizes yes right yeah <laughs> it's like doesn't apologize for like almost killing him no um, it's property damage right it's the one thing that actually counts in the in this world is that you have to have stuff yeah. and these are two people yeah. who don't have anything who yeah exist on the lower economic tier John yeah. is yeah not as a skilled itinerant worker but he is itinerant. He goes where the work is, which amazingly yeah. enough now is the theme of, uh, of Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Uh, oh yeah, that's yeah. right. I have to see that. Yeah. It just, again, it feels yeah. like this thing, other than cell phones and occasional, you know, hairstyles, this thing could have been made tomorrow. Someone, someone well, is probably working drones. on one. Yes, that's right. <laughs> there's drones. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Although I have to say, you know, for me, in terms of if we speak of like, because I do, I mean, I feel it, it is sort of a cathartic film to watch right now because mm -hmm. it's like everybody looks at me. Well, I won't say everybody. I'll say when I look at Mitch McConnell, he resembles more one of those aliens than he, you know, a human being. And so, but I, so I have to, I, I have to say that the fact that Nada and 
and Frank spend so much energy fighting themselves, right? Yeah. As yeah. opposed to fighting the aliens is like, oh, come on guys, it's just a little bit, come on. So that that was um, something that struck me yesterday as well. And just in, also just in terms of a comment on, on what's going on as well with all of us who should be allies constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, they, yeah. the aliens have figured that out, right? They, um, yes, they offer, they offer their status to the squabblers. Mm -hmm. They pull people in by appealing to them. And again, of course, it's, yeah. it's late capitalism with legs. It's just legs and a ghoulish face. Actually, that was the other thing I was going to say. It's technically not a zombie movie. This is me being a nerd, but um, Carpenter okay. referred to them as ghouls in 1988. Right. And yes. We're recording this the day after Stephen Miller was diagnosed with coronavirus. And the, the <laughs> joke on Twitter is, I didn't know it could infect ghouls. It's like, I didn't even need that connection to form. It was there for me. Um, right. But it, yeah. it's not a predictive film because everything it's talking about was already happening. But it does feel as though this very specific type of um, right-wing fundamentalist capitalism death culture that's been built up around Donald Trump specifically that he he inherited when he became the nominee in 2016 he stoked it for four years it does feel like this is that like it feels that this film is very much about a leader who we never see we never you know like we're just a franchise to the aliens they've shown up and taken over and they're going to move on to the next thing when they when they get whatever they want from us but yeah the machinery is what's important. And that's the thing that is resisted in the film, not an individual. They never put a face on it, which I find really interesting in, in um, Carpenter's perspective because he almost always does give you a villain. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's an entity to be opposed and here it's, it's the whole system. It's the system, yeah. Which I, I mean, for me, I'm like all of my films, they, in much more subtle ways than they live. <laughs> Well, you, you make you, documentaries, yeah. you're, you're restricted in <laughs> yeah. some level. Yeah. Well, you'd hope it would be more subtle because you can't get it more overt than, than they live, but, you know, tries to make the familiar strange, right? Mm -hmm. Like tries to take social custom and, and shed new light on it and have audience members look at things differently than they did before. And so, yeah. like for me, they live was very satisfying just because it was just so in your face with making the familiar strange, right? Like the world, I'm really interested and captivated by this idea that the world is not what we think it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, with They Live, they reveal this whole underlayer to quote unquote reality that most people can't see. And in so doing, the system becomes the antagonist right and injustice become like and the injustices of the system and the way the system is rigged becomes the injustice and i and i i feel that's just so uh that that thread is is so important for what we're as we try and navigate this post-truth world and still aspire to the the project of truth like still try and figure out what truth is like I find it really, really interesting, the various approaches to try and figure all of this out. In today's world, it's very mystifying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your uh, the new corporation takes the approach of an instructional video, basically, 
to to walk us through the ways that we're basically screwed. And um, the magnitude of all things is much more, I think, emotionally uh, argued it, in a in a in a very literal way. You're trying to build a, a bridge between the personal and the and the global uh, loss and suffering that's been going on. But I guess the advantage of a documentary is that you can treat your audience as intelligent individuals and just assume mm-hmm. they've already sat down to learn or to be educated or illuminated. And you don't have to slip stuff in. You can be much more direct. Whereas a movie like They Live is all metaphor all the time. It's just that now mm-hmm. the metaphor is so obvious that you like it feels almost uh, literal at this point. Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting because like when you say there's with documentary people, I think that there's more of a demand with documentary than, or, you know, than it, for it just to, I'm not suggesting you're saying it should only be instruct, instructional. Sure. But it, it feels to me very much like there's a, been a real shift, which I appreciate, you know, as a filmmaker in terms of making documentaries and that like I you know I have really high standards for the films I make in the sense that I want them to be as engaging and as emotionally powerful of course as um feature film but um yeah I think that this film is just so completely out there and that's a bit of a relief too it's so like lacking in any embarrassment (laughs) too right like you know and um yeah, I think it's refreshing right now. I don't know. I, did you have you? When was the last time that you watched it? They live. Yeah, um, I'm gonna guess about a year ago. I think. Oh, okay. It's okay. pretty fresh and in my mind. How did you feel then? Yeah, but how did you feel like at that point, like in terms of a year ago? Like- I I thought that it was one of those moments where I thought I owed Carpenter not an apology because I've always loved the movie, but that I'd underestimated it. It's okay. Yeah. I felt you know, that way too last night, actually. Yeah. yeah. When I watched it again. Yeah. He's, you know, he's technically proficient. He's always yeah. been, you know, he's always known exactly where to put the camera, always known how to cut in widescreen. He's always surrounded himself with people who, who are just enable whatever the gift is that he has. Uh, and then after, actually, this was probably his last really great movie and then memoirs of invisible men and vampires and that that slide that happened with ghosts of mars and a few other films where he was just kind of plugging away and and making movies but whatever the spark was that animated that incredible run he had from assault on precinct 13 in 76 through to they live in in 88 that that seems to have been the window yeah yeah i think i mean for me they live is unquestionably my favorite of his but probably it's because I gravitate towards those issues, right? Any, sure, anything yeah. that takes down Reaganomics is, or, and, you know, sort of attacks uh, consumption and, you know, that our neoliberal system is going to be appealing to me, <laughs> so, as I you mean, might imagine. I'm on board as well, yeah. Uh, so when yeah. did you first encounter it? Did you see it at the time or catch up to it later? No, I didn't see it at the time. I I. You know, I'm not even sure. I've, I've definitely seen it a few times. I, I believe it was like a friends of mine had a they live party. I sort of I sort of half remember, and it would have been. I wouldn't have been when it right when it first came out. Yeah, so it was it was a, just a, a little they live party. I believe the first time. Yeah, that's wonderful. How many people were there? Yeah. Did... 
Oh, it was just, and actually, well, actually I could date it because as I recall, they had just had a baby and that baby is now 20. So there wow. you go. Okay. So, so there were probably only about six people there. It was just a small little, yeah, but it would have been about 20 years ago. Okay. It yeah. was already, I'm trying to figure out if it was already out in widescreen because for a decade, it was only available in pan and scan. And that was just, unless you were lucky oh, okay. enough to get a laser disc, it was just unwatchable. Oh, okay. Because um, okay. the compositions, yeah. of course, are so gorgeous in scope. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. I think yeah. So too. And the, yeah. I mean, I remember the, trying to watch the fight in pan and scan and the, it just the camera electronically whips from one side to the other. It's artificial and phony oh, and just okay. uh, destroys the rhythms of it. Um, but yeah, I love the idea that it was just out there kind of overlooked it didn't do terribly well theatrically it was it was the i think it was actually the end of carpenter's deal with universal he'd set up this little low budget thing after big trouble bombed sadly i still don't understand how that happened i mean i do the world is cruel but um his next two films were prince of darkness and, and they live and they were made for universal for no money at all and he wrote them under pseudonyms like everything about them is sort of quietly disreputable and I think that's also the only way a movie like They Live got made. If you, if you had the studio involved in a larger budget and more people mm. paying attention, I don't think it ever would have come out the way it did. Mm. Uh, and then yeah. it just rattled around in the pop culture zeitgeist, or the, not even the zeitgeist, it rattled around in the subconscious for a good 10 yeah. years. Do you know when it peaked as a, like when it gained cult status? I don't even, I don't know that. I think it would have you had to do. be around the time that the fight was parodied in South Park. Oh, yeah. There's a South Park episode that restages it almost shot for shot and in, <laughs> in the same length of time. It's it's brilliant, honestly. Uh, the episode I think is called Cripple Fight and it is offensive in so many other ways, but it's the two physically challenged characters, Timmy and Jimmy, I think. It's been it's been at least 20 years since I've seen this, um, but they they just throw down in an alley and it is, the fight from they live, um, okay. except for putting on the glasses. There's some other reason that they're fighting, but it takes three or four minutes to click that that's what's going on. And when it does, you just, you feel the world around you just get a little bit brighter, not just because it's such a clever appropriation of the, of the moment, but because someone loved they live besides me. It was just <laughs> that sense that I wasn't completely alone. I'm so, glad you like they you love they love they live you love they live I love it <laughs> yeah you would think it would be some kind of I mean I guess it was right somebody the Shepherd Fairy posters um the the obey movement that came out in in um yeah. in punk design it's out there yeah, it's they made a lot of money with <laughs> yeah probably yeah. more than Carpenter ever did <laughs> yeah well I it's interesting because I like to work with a lot of archival footage, right, in my films. And I we I did um, uh, bring Ingest They Live when we were experimenting and we considered using clips of it in the new corporation. Oh, yeah. Obviously it didn't make it in. And in fact, very little archival made it in. Um, it's just a different film than the first one, but it's, it's, uh, it's one I could see playing with at some point for sure, yeah. Yeah. Again, I keep thinking there's this test I run every now and then of how could you remake something like this? Uh, would mm. it even be possible? And maybe, I mean, yes, in this case, I think you could absolutely do another version of this. It just wouldn't be as, um, I mean, it wouldn't feel as bold or original because they live already exists. But if you were trying to remake it, yeah. you'd have to incorporate social media. You'd have to incorporate 
you know, surveillance and all the other things that exist now that didn't in 1988. And in a way that makes the movie more powerful because of those mm-hmm. restrictions, because it sees everything coming. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Well, a remake with uh, cloaked contemporary characters from the U.S. administration would, I think that would be fun. <laughs> You could probably yeah. pull that off. Yeah, I think uh, so. There was a television <laughs> yeah. series a couple of years ago called Brain Dead, I think, that oh, posited okay. an infection of parasitic worms, uh, oh, driving okay. driving Republican trutherism and, and fanaticism. But I think They Live actually comes up with a more disturbing idea, which is that we just get tempted. People just get bought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. a voluntary sacrifice. Yeah. Well, I think there's that. And then there's also, of course, you know, that we're asleep and that we we get lulled to sleep very easily, mm-hmm. right? We get seduced by fancy images and lulled to sleep. And, and that's a really strong message too for me in terms of, of waking up and what does that mean? And yeah. Yeah. It comes up in the corporation a few times as well, doesn't it? The, the idea that we're all being seduced by, or seduced yeah. by distraction, I suppose is what I'd say. Yeah, well, I think it does come up. It definitely, um, Chris Hedges references it and, you know, that we're we're sort of obviously entranced by ourselves, really, right? Yeah. In term, and, and that corporate culture is so focused on us and competition and, uh, not, you know, looking out for number one, that, and, and consumption. So we, we absolutely, we, we do look at that a little bit. Yeah. You can't not, in a, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's also, it's so embodied in Trump as well, just from from his ascent through The Apprentice, right? He was selling yeah. aspiration and the the thing that I still see now when these, these people defend him on Twitter and try to rationalize, you know, he's beating the coronavirus by fighting it personally. Uh, yeah. That was an argument someone was making two days ago. And all I could think of is, you think you'll be the one who gets to be his friend. You'll, they'll be the one person he keeps where, mm. you know, for 50 years, all he's done is throw people under the bus, whichever bus yeah. was available to him. He, he destroys yeah. everyone and everything. Yeah. And here we have, you know, like the, in, in They Live, there's the Buck Flower character who shows you know, like the hobo who's, yeah. been, who's been kicked back, like a literal hobo, not to be defamatory or, or insulting in that, you know, in, by using that term. He is portrayed as a guy who would be boiling a shoe in a pot if he had one. Uh, yeah. And then by the end of it, he's unreconstructed, but wearing a tuxedo. He's still just as vile as he was, but now he has a nice watch and a good suit and he's blended right in. And he doesn't care that they're using him, that that it's so clear that they have no regard for him. He's just, he's there to take what he can in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And it's, um, you know, it's a really revealing moment when they I, I mean I love that moment where they go down the portal <laughs> I mean that that would be a handy watch to have yeah. uh, but you know that scene in you know the dining room where the, the great leader is is um speaking and and all and the humans who have sold out are there and they don't care as you say right and I I feel it's um like I guess for people that are observing not only American politics, but politics like in Brazil or Poland or, you know, we, we could name many, many different countries. 
you know, who, who are just, who it's just so baffling, you know, how the things that are happening could be happening. I mean, it's not so, it's not as if in this film, complex answers are being given, but it is a very sort of explicit um, condemnation, if you will, really of humanity in terms of our ability to be just completely um, betrayed by money. And there's some great lines about money too, right? It's just business. That's the Buckflower um, yeah. line. And so I, think, I don't know, I guess it's, um, yeah, I, I, I do like that scene where they're, I, it, always it always surprised me where they enter that space and they're not all of a sudden, like they're just like walk around and nobody's yeah. sort of, nobody's like calling the, the watch in and, and they're not being uh, arrested somewhere. So anyway, that surprised me about that scene. Yeah, I just assume yeah. it's because everyone else is so transfixed by what's happening on stage. It's like blundering into a multi-level marketing meeting in a hotel somewhere. You suddenly yeah. you realize nobody's even looking at the door. They're all focused intently on what it is that they can use to win. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. And it backdoors the the rebellion a little bit in a nice fun way that leads to yeah. a big dumb climax that is ultimately a useless victory, I guess, because nothing's going to change. But the um it ends at exactly the right moment. It shouldn't work. That that final montage of the ghouls all being revealed. Uh it should not work but it, it's so goofy and good natured, yeah. I guess. It's like, you know, we've just watched everyone yeah. lose everything. All of our heroes are yeah. dead. They've been betrayed. Yeah. Um, it's the one thing the movie doesn't really do enough with, which is the question of how many people in media are complicit. And it can't, mm. right? Because Holly has to be the big reveal mm. at the end. We can't mm -hmm. know. But mm -hmm. it's, but the casting of Meg Foster in that role is just, there's something a little chilly about her. There's something a little, mm -hmm. a little too eager to help when it happens. And mm -hmm. it, when I saw it with an audience uh, that first night, people in the audience were like, aw, they could actually feel their their disappointment that she was a turncoat. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, those eyes, very unusual eyes. They yeah. sort of- uh, Icy blue. They're icy, they're very, that's a very good way of putting it. So I, I was always quite distrustful of her. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why, but I, well, I guess her eyes, I was like, whoa. <laughs> That was actually really, I thought, really good casting. Yeah, it's great. No one who works yeah. in media can be trusted. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we have- Well, you yeah. said you found the ending really unsatisfying, did you? Like, I, the, I the mechanics of that sequence are a little bit unsatisfying. He just shows up, gets to the roof, yeah. shoots the thing, is betrayed. It just, it feels kind of small for the big global revolution oh, okay. that it kicks off. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But then you get the you get the revolution in really small bites as well, which I think saves it because yeah. it is just so silly. And it's it's that thing that everybody complains about when they're watching movies with very limited scope is that they, you know, oh, I wanted to see what the world is like outside the Matrix. Well, it's just kind of messy. Um, mm -hmm. the, at the end of Cube, he, we don't see the world of Cube. It's like, well, just be some people in offices. I don't know what you'd want from these things, really. They Live actually ends with a cataclysmic up, upending event and the only way we can see it is by the three or four people in the room uh, at a time, because that's all the film has the money for. But yeah. it's also really, really smart because it makes it intimate. It makes it um, yeah. immediately relatable. Yes, it does. I think I, I quite, and it's so simple and it's, it's so brief. 
Yeah. But it, I, I, I love the end. I think the end's great. Yeah. So it's like, it's got that cheap shot at Siskel and Ebert, which is just so funny and it shouldn't be, but it really, really is. And then, yeah, yeah. And then not uh, giving the finger is great. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I find, I found the ending quite satisfying. Um, but I see what you mean in terms of the actual uh, build up to that moment. Yeah, it's yeah. more the mechanics of getting there. The, yeah, the, sure. It just feels, and it's again, it's part of the function of it is that they don't have a lot of money and that they don't have a lot of running time, really. This thing is really yeah. efficient. And maybe that's it. After the way it luxuriates in the fight scene, or even just the whole first act where we really do get a sense of the, the world that we are inhabiting, the parts of Los Angeles yeah. that we don't get to see, uh, homeless yeah. camps, and, and homeless encampments in a movie in 1988. Again, you know, like we have 10 cities now, but this is that. It's just... yeah. It's predicting this thing as well. And the apparently the, that's like a real homeless camp and they were all paid a day's wages. Yeah, I heard that. about that's that what too. I heard. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they had to destroy something else in the scene where the uh, the police come in because they couldn't actually they didn't want to damage the relocation. Oh, that's that's nice to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And apparently the most expensive scene was that supermarket scene because all of those uh, labels had to be hand. Oh, they were all actually yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what the budget was for the film. Do you? I think it was pretty small. I'm, I remember it being, uh, I don't want to guess at it, but I think it was something like 1.5 or 2 million. It was a lot smaller okay. than it could have been. The nature of his deal with Universal was that it was almost nothing. I'm not even sure he was paid for the writing, which is why there's a pseudonym. It's possible. Yeah, there's it's just a pseudonym. Part of his yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Frank Armitage is yeah. the credited uh, name. Yeah. Um, it's apparently, it's, uh, Wait, no, I don't actually know. I don't know the significance of this one. I know the significance of the pseudonym he used on um, uh, Prince of Darkness. He, he credited it to Martin Quatermass, which is a reference to the Nigel Neal Quatermass TV series and movies from the UK, which are very, very similar to Prince of Darkness. But, okay. Uh, yeah. And it's possible that Nigel Neal also developed the story with him. They're, they're sort of competing stories about that. They live okay. is credited to just a generic name, as far as I know. To Frank Armitage. Frank Armitage, who is yeah, John Carpenter. Yeah, yeah. And Joe Carpenter is also um, the composer here. Oh, always. Yeah. He, yeah, He amazing. did the music for everything right through to, uh, I think, with the exception of The Thing. He wrote the music for everything he did up until, I'm going to say, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. So this might oh, have actually been the last one. Yeah. And then he yeah. did it again with vampires. He's just, it's, and it's unlike most of his other music too. It's bluesy and weird and yeah. slow. I yeah. just listen to that on its own sometimes. I do love the soundtrack. Oh, yeah, I'll do. I love listening to soundtracks. I have to say, I play so many different roles in my films, but I never am the composer, sadly. I'd love to be able to be. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be one thing I would, I should take up. <laughs> yeah, an instrument. Point. I'd love to play an instrument. I don't. <laughs> So. No, you could probably garage band it at this point. I mean, every the technology is yeah. there for anybody. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, uh, I'm just very impressed that he's also a composer. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, and yeah. such a and such a good one too. I mean, his instincts are amazing. Yeah. Just the score for Halloween is one of the most unnerving things yeah. in the world. It really. I remember seeing Halloween when it came out. Oh my God, that was <laughs> that freaked me out. <laughs> That's for sure. I don't think I should have ever seen that film. Uh, it's, a, it's a perfect it's engine. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And he does, I mean, he does bring the same focus to bear here in that it just, it moves like a shark. It just mm -hmm. establishes mm -hmm. runs with its premise. 
um, constantly suggesting a larger world. We never really find out about the tech behind the glasses or, I mean, why would we? They're magic. That's all yeah. there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, it's, you know, in interviews, he actually identifies the ghouls, but sometimes get called, the ghouls as Republicans. Yeah. Right. And sure. so uh, that's also really um I wonder what he would say now, actually. I would love to hear his take on Republicans now. I wonder if, you know, the ghouls represent the Republicans and then the human ones are the Tea Party who joined on because they offered them the craziest ways to express their anger. And now it's QAnon and everything else. Yeah, QAnon, I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, maybe that's the way in for a remake now. You'd have to deal with something like that. And it's... Yeah. I, the only way I could see it working was if the QAnon people have become so radical that either the aliens no longer want anything to do with them and are sort of helping other people get rid of them. It's like clear the middleman out. Yeah. Or if QAnon's beliefs are the only ones that are true, but that's something, that's a function I don't really want to endorse somehow. Yeah. Well, the Proud Boys probably have a role to play in a contemporary version too. (laughs) Yeah. They can be security. They can be their enforcers. And and actually, you know, somehow weaving in COVID-19 seems appropriate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like we're, we're in the combo platter stage of the extinction level event where there isn't just one thing we can, we can choose a whole bunch of different things to go terribly, terribly wrong. It's, it's, yeah, it's a complete systemic failure, right? That's what we're watching. In That's what motion. we're watching. Yeah, the, the decline of the American empire. But, you know, there's also a reference, of course, that the ghouls were um, in, you know, releasing various greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to warm right. the planet, right? right. <laughs> so that if we're, if we're talking about various existential threats that are referenced. Um, and it, yeah, it just feels like, the culmination is here. And um, sometimes you just have to cry about it. And sometimes you have to laugh about it. <laughs> and sometimes you have, to, yeah. I, I don't tend to um, get that much uh, pleasure from watching men shoot guns, but it, I have to admit, it was a little bit satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Take your catharsis yeah. where you can. Take I, it honestly. where you can. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the new corporation is ultimately a pandemic movie as well. And you clearly got swerved out of your original lane because the film, the documentary incorporates stuff that was shot after the fact, which I found really, I mean, it's powerful, but it's also really jarring because so few things are engaging with what's actually happening right now that people are talking about, you know, the television series that we're watching are only beginning to reflect it because they're the things that were put into production in March and April once this started. But it's, yeah. it was, it was really shocking to suddenly see the timeline of your, of your film, of your documentary collide with real events in a way that you couldn't shoot around. All of a sudden we're watching home video and Skype footage and cell phone shots and, and people yeah. phoning things in this, you know, the sound quality changes cause they're not in, in a booth anymore yeah we had to open up picture lock right we we so the we were pretty well locked picture in i'd say about april and then maybe yeah april and we joel and i joel back in the co-director and writer um we just felt really strongly that if we didn't include the pandemic that the film would be out of date before it 
and I, I think we were right too, you know, to oh, because it, so, yeah. it's just so relevant. It, you know, pandemic laid bare the injustices of the system that we were trying to expose. And, and then it also showed us like our humanity, right? And we use it in that way too. And then also the, the, the link between the destruction of nature and these emerging diseases and uh, zoonotic disease transfer. So, so we, yeah, we opened up picture lock to include it, uh, had to convince the producers. And then we actually opened up picture lock the second time, right? With the anti-racism uprising. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course, that was like, after, yeah. yeah. That, and that we only did in two weeks, right? So um, that was a challenge, but again, it's not as if we were like, we're not a current, it wasn't a, it's not a current events film, obviously. But those two events were just so monumental that to not include them would have have been, yeah. I mean, they've transformed the film, including them. I I feel anyway. Oh yeah, and without it, yeah. it would have felt strangely naive, right? Because this other yes. thing is coming, and you can't pretend it isn't there. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. It's true. Yeah, yeah. And and the idea of feeling the loss of the world that we used to live in while mm -hmm. we're still living in it is something that runs through the end of the new corporation in a really subtle way. And it's much more, I think, front and center in the magnitude of all things, or at least mm -hmm. that's how I interpreted it. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the magnitude of all things is about, you know, it is about our emotional and psychological relationship to the climate crisis, right? And as you say to the, you know, we're, we're living in this world that's changing all around us and it's changing in a way that is a loss, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm in Vancouver and we for many of the last several weeks have had air that's so polluted by the climate change fueled fires. Oh, of course. We can't go outside. We can't see across the street. The, you can't see the sun. It's, if you do see the sun, it's this strange, beautiful, beautiful, the apocalypse is a beautiful, <laughs> you know, or orange. So, you know, it's a, it's a real loss. And, you know, when you, so, you know, it's coming to terms with, with the changing world all around us. And so the magnitude of all things, we travel all over the world to the, you know, fire stricken Australia and Great Barrier Reef and, um, the rain, Amazon rainforest and the nuts of it in Northern Canada. And uh, we talked to people on the climate front lines about how they're feeling, right? So it's very, so absolutely, it's very much about how people are feeling. And you personally, what's the toll been like um, on you to, to mm -hmm. document all of this? I mean, you've been, you've been making the corporation really since what, 2002, 2001, when you started work on it, or even before that, right? to live with this for, for 20 years? Yeah. yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I think I have a mixed relationship to that because on the one hand, it is difficult to, and I, all, all, I mean, all my films are fairly difficult subject matter. Uh, and, and of course, you know, sink, I sink my heart and soul into the film, like don't, I don't really ever escape it completely over the years that each film is made. So it can take its toll without question. But on the other hand, I, I you know, I'm not a person that likes to dwell in this on the surface. Like I like to really dive deep into things. And, and so, you know, on the, even though it's, 
difficult on one level. It's also very kind of gratifying to feel like it's sort of it, to, to feel like there's some deep reflection going on. And, and as a human being, that's sort of one of my projects just to, you know, that I, I like to try and figure these things out and reflect deeply and, and then use my skill set to sort of create some kind of reflection of, of that. Yeah, that seems constructive. Yeah. I just sit there and mourn. It's not nearly <laughs> as good. Well, mourning is good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, for, for me going, I think it's important that we go towards that morning, right? That we go towards our deepest fears and sorrows, whatever they may be and not mm. away from, because it's a, it's a lot of energy to, to keep those things at bay and going towards them ultimately, I think it's more, not only healthy, but ultimately we grow more that way, you know, and we, we become our best, I think that way. And that, and I mean, it's a real belief of mine that at this moment in time, we have to find ways to bring out humanity's best because there's a lot of humanity's worst coming out yeah. in lots of areas. Right. Yeah. And we're, we're heading for, we're heading for some difficult times, even more difficult than now. And if we, if we don't bring out our best, then we're in, we're in even deeper trouble. Yeah. And I, I used to think that all the alien invasion movies, uh, even they live in its way are ultimately optimistic because they imply that if we can wake everybody up, we'll all be on the same side. And yes, you know, you know humanity will always unite against an existential or extraterrestrial threat. And then it turns out the virus comes along and people are arguing over whether they get to wear masks or not. We're not going to yeah. make it, are we? <laughs> No, well, I think that's the thing that's cathartic to me about They Live is that, you know, the aliens are exposed for who, who they are or what they are, right? Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then, then there's the ability to root them out, as you say, right? But that's, I think, what's so sad about the current um, situation. Not, I always keep going back to the States just because you can't make that stuff up, right? Like, yeah, it's like, no, totally. if, it, if it wasn't so tragic and so sad, it would be like, it is so interesting, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but, but it's not like, that's what, it's not as if they have been exposed, right? Like what was that bus thing that Trump, you know, I was sure when in, during the election last time and he was um, caught recording on the bus about assaulting women and bragging about it. Right. Um, yeah. What was that, that, scandal called I the access remember. hollywood scandal wasn't yeah, that, that that was four right. years ago today i think if i'm oh, remembering correctly i just oh. saw either today or yesterday i saw something floating around on social media of course i did uh that this is when it happened okay well there you go very you know very topical for today then because you know <laughs> there he is you know he's revealed i was like oh phew he'll just never this is it this is he'll be rooted out now like what self-respecting woman or person would vote for this person at this point, right? But but that's, I think, yeah. what's so depressing about it. Or or Miller, who is the real life ghoul, right? Or or McConnell, or, I mean, we can just keep going, of course. Sure. Um, and they are all being revealed to be so morally corrupt. Like it's, it's sort of beyond, it's unfathomable, but they're not being rooted out, right? They're not, they're, 
<laughs> and, no, and they're being celebrated think, in their circles, right? Like that's the, the worse they are, the more they're embraced by people who feel as, as best I can tell people who feel they would do exactly the same thing if given the opportunity. They're just, they're avatars yeah. of strength for, for weak people. Yeah. God, that's a good way to put it. Oh, it's um, probably not it's original, very but... hard. <laughs> it's very hard to, um, it's, it's really hard to, to figure out. So that, I think that's the difference with they live and why, you know, it's just sort of a relief to, 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 to travel that plot that is quite simple and, and they're exposed and then they're, you know, um, and, and it's just not happening on the other side. Right. So yeah, they, it's true. Trump, I mean, they, Trump could literally shoot someone in the street as he says himself and that would be okay. No, I'm sure there'd be a perfectly good reason. Someone, someone on his side would come up with a good story. Yeah. And, uh, and that would be that. Yeah. No, it, it does yeah. make one despair. And again, it's, it's why I, it's why I love Carpenter and Universal putting this movie out on the weekend before an election. And there are people now who are planning to drop COVID documentaries two weeks before Adam Benzine has his film, The Curve, coming out on YouTube in the States two weeks beforehand in order to just win some hearts and minds. And I want to believe yeah. it'll help. I yeah. do. I want to, but I just, I, I think the ghouls have a pretty good uh, hold on those people and I don't know that they're going to let go. Yeah, I don't know either. We'll have to see. Some people have wanted to use the new corporation too before the election. So fingers crossed. Yeah, it's really... It's really a scary time. We're not sure which way it's going to go. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can listen back to this episode in three months and laugh at how silly we were to be scared because everything worked <laughs> out fine. That'd be it's fine. So, what? <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Let's yeah. hope. My thanks to Jennifer Abbott, whose films The Magnitude of All Things and The New Corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel, are available to stream as of tomorrow, Wednesday, October 14th, at planetinfocus.org. Thanks also to Jennifer Mayer. She knows what she did. You can find Jennifer Abbott on Twitter at Corporation Film, all one word, and you can find They Live in a jam-packed Blu-ray special edition from Shout Factory, and there's a 4K release coming December 4th. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming in the U.S. via Stars. And here's something I learned after the fact. Frank Armitage is the full name of Keith David's character in the movie. Go figure. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're at it. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.